Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Just the Basics. I'm your host, Tommy Bowles. I'm Matt Shaw. And we're bringing the beat for you once a week. So we're starting a new thing that we haven't done before, taking kind of a new format for the podcast. I think it's really cool. It's going to help us deliver better content for everybody and also give us a chance to take a break every now and then. Uh, <laughs> we're going to start doing things in seasons. So the way that we're doing it is last week is episode one of season one. And our first season is going to be all about music theory. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting. Like you could talk about when it comes to music theory, you could talk about so many different things. You could talk about the in-depth of and the intricacies of part writing and serialism and, you know, how did the Baroque era do it differently than the Romantic era and all that stuff. But we're not going to waste your time with all of that stuff. Basically, we're trying to give you a course on functional music theory that you can use as an everyday musician. So, Are you trying to say that we're going to give them just the basics? I might be. I might be. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting old. Oh, gosh. It's a dad joke right there. (laughs) I have no spawn. That's your job. Yeah, right. (laughs) So this is like, I, I don't know about you, Matt, but I felt like in music theory, half the crap that we learned, I've never, I'm going to use it. It wasn't actually useful for my career as a musician, unless I'm going to be in the world of academia. Right, right. Or it was only like a basic, con- oh, great. <laughs> oh, you're doing it again. I can't get away from it. No, um, it was on- only the, you know, the core concept of some sort of outlandish idea that Mm -hmm. we were given the rules for and what it was, but we didn't really get to apply it until later on, like um, diminished chords and the fully diminished sevens. I, I understood what it meant when we learned it in theory, or at least when I did. And Mm -hmm. then it wasn't until years later working in uh, as I got into jazz, that I was like, oh, now it makes sense. And tritone right. subs made zero sense in theory, even though I, I'm, well, I aced everything in theory. So I aced the assignments on tritone subs, but they didn't make any sense whatsoever for how to actually use them until I s- sat down with Mr. Spencer 30 minutes at some lesson at some point, and he explained it in five seconds. And I was like, oh, well, that's easy. <laughs> right. So, so there's goal, a bunch of like, stuff that doesn't make sense that really can be broken down easy. It can be simplified. Yeah. Like, we've been saying this whole time, music doesn't have to be difficult, but people take music concepts and they turn them into rocket science, and it's really not that hard. So it, it's it's like learning learning math, learning to count. You know, mm-hmm. you don't know what three is until you know what one and two are. You can't build on the you can't build your your uh, knowledge base without having the small foundation to start on. And music theory is the same way. You start out with small building blocks and you add things to it. And next thing you know, you know way more than you thought you would ever know. Mm-hmm. And people that don't understand any of it look at you like you're crazy when they hear you talk. But it's not hard to get to that point. It just takes a few, a little bit of work, step by step. So we're going to spend the next, well, it's going to be an eight-episode total season so the next seven episodes including this one talking about music theory how to build it and how to apply it so 
I think it'll be really helpful for everybody. And we're going to create blog posts of every episode as we go. I'm working on the one for last week right now. And we're going to publish those. They're going to be a little bit more in-depth than what we talk about just to give you a written viewpoint of it so you can have a, something to look at and read as well as listen to. Right. So it's going to be kind of a companion. They'll go with each other. So this one, we're going to talk about scales and key signatures. Because scales and key signatures, they build music theory. Like, you don't have a song without a scale. And scales, you don't have without key signatures. Otherwise, you end up with just random stuff all over the wall, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You end up with late Coltrane. With late Coltrane, yeah. Or like a fretless bass player not knowing where to actually play the notes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I saw this funny meme of a parking lot, and it had a, a guy parked over top of the line. And all the spots were open. He was just parked kind of sideways over top of one of the lines in the spots. And it said fretless players. And that, I got that's a, a well-crafted that joke. That's well done. Yeah, it, it was pretty good. It was a good meme. So when you're learning music theory, I think this is the only place to logically start. So we're going to start talking about the key signatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt, I've got a, got a question for you. Um, how many key signatures are there? Well, sir balls, I, uh, I, I saw this question in your notes, so I prepped myself and wrote it down because there are 20 if I didn't miscount like an idiot. And that comes with the caveat that there are 20 visual key signatures, but there's a little more to it than that, sir. What if I told you you're wrong? Oh, doggone. <laughs> Please tell me then, because I, I, I sat down in wherever I was sitting and counted. So when I learned this, I felt like an idiot too, because I was watching the YouTube video and uh, Victor Wooten was talking about how he learned it and how dumb he looked when he learned it too. And I'm sitting there, and he's like, how many key signatures are there? And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh, I know the answer to this. There's 24. You got your, you, you, uh, all your, you have tw- uh, 12 notes. Start them all on major key, start them all on a minor key, 24. That's easy. And he was like, and he, that's what he thought too. And then the Anthony Wellington goes, no, there's 30. And he was like, what? <laughs> but he didn't want to admit it because he was hosting his own camp and didn't want to admit that he was wrong. So he just stood there in the back, kind of leaning up against the wall. And the whole time he's scratching his head like, what did I miss? So let me break it down for you. It's okay. kind of, I'll admit this is not completely real it it makes sense the way it's broken down but it's in my opinion it's kind of well you'll see why in a second here okay so you let's start with the sharp keys for a second Mm -hmm. so you can have a sharp key with one sharp so that'd be the key of g then you can have one with two sharps that'd be d then you can have it with three sharps which is a Three. Then you can have it with four sharps, which is E. Ah, ah, ah. And then five sharps, which would be B. And then six sharps, which would be F sharp. Then seven sharps, which would be uh, C sharp. C sharp. Mm-hmm. And then you can have um, eight sharps, which is B sharp, where every note is sharped. Wait. Now the reason this is a little weird. 
Um, did I skip G sharp? Yeah. Maybe I did. Oh yeah. G sharp. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a little weird because all the notes sharped is basically none of the notes sharped, but it still is a, it's a thing that people I've seen, I've seen crazy people write in it before. I've had people give me some crazy stuff to read and it really irritates me, but so you've got all those and then you have all those in minors as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're looking at um, that's up to 14 when you double all those. So you have all those. Then you have all your flat keys. Well, you have the same amount of things in flat keys. So now we're at um, 14 and 14, so we're at 28. Then you have a major key with no sharps or flats. Right. So that's 29. And then you have a minor key with no sharps or flats. So now you're at 30. Pretty interesting. So technically, you could have 30 keys that are written in. Now, are you really going to see all those keys? No way. No. You're really going to, there's not going to be actually that many that you're going to see. Like, you're never going to see somebody write in B sharp. That's a theoretical key. Or somebody writing in G sharp, they're not going to call it G sharp. They're going to call it A flat. Mm -hmm. But they could call it G sharp. And then you got to know what it is. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, in the case that you have a composer that maybe they didn't really think it through much or, uh, you know, they or just, they're terrible that's where people. they started. It, yeah, or they're just a troll and they're just trying to mess with the people they work with. Then they might use those keys that are not exactly conventional. I mean, usually those sharp keys that you never actually see those are all the flat keys usually i mm-hmm. you tend to see it that way just because for one the key signatures um it eliminates all those extras that you don't see that way everything's a little better organized and it creates more of a familiarity so it gets rid of the complexity of oh we're playing in the key of g sharp and it's like what why a flat right, exactly. makes more sense. So why not play in that key? Because now we don't have to say sharp for every little thing. And uh, wouldn't G sharp have a like a double sharp in it or somewhere? Um, Probably yeah, not. you would have an F double sharp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you're really getting into weird territory now when your key has double sharps or double flats or right. I don't know. If so I think that at a certain point, it gets obsolete, but... Yeah, exactly. Well, and you could keep riding that theoretical train if you want to and add even more, like you could have the key of F double sharp, <laughs> which is literally <laughs> just a key of G, and if you ever write something like that, then please, please just quit. I mean, that's F- the jokes that you get as soon as someone gets out of uh, their, you know, theory 102. And then that's their main joke in every ensemble that they walk into every time that they play in the key of G. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's playing up double sharp. Like, you gotta be kidding me. I hated learning stuff, or I hated when we got to stuff like that. Especially because even at the college level, it seemed like it was a, like a whole new thing to people that they had never heard of before. I certainly hadn't, but my story kind of makes sense for why I hadn't heard of it before. Well, and Liberty is a little bit different. I think they're changing now, but when they first started, or when we got there, they basically took everybody into the music program True. because they were trying to grow it. But now that they 
are more established. They have to be a little more judicious. Mm-hmm. But I still think they take pretty much everybody, and then what they do is they they kick you out after two years if you suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If if you didn't, you know, work and practice and study and actually mm-hmm. learn the theory, then now they'll boot you. And I think that's fair. I I think letting everybody in is fine. Um, in my opinion, it should be after year one that there's that test that'll boot you because otherwise they're just stealing your money a little bit. Even even if it's yeah. your fault for not studying that. Yes, it's your fault, but that's just being irresponsible of letting you go two full years and having to pay like almost probably like, you know, close to six figures and then saying, nope, you didn't No. So it's partially your own fault, and but it'd be anyway. We're getting off track. Back yeah. to key six. Yeah, back to key signatures. So now we've established that there's thirty, but not really. Yeah, no, it's no, it's really, fine. But, man, it's <laughs> whatever, whatever. So Matt, why why would you say that key signatures are important? I think it, right out of the gate, you'll know immediately the core idea of what scale you need to use which we're not getting into that yet but as soon as you look at a piece if there's one sharp you know that it is rather g or e minor at its very its absolute Mm -hmm. home base of the song you know that that's where everything starts it might veer off the course along the way but at least you know that when it starts up, like say for some reason you are starting with improvising right out of the gate, then at least you know what to do immediately because why on earth would a song be so stupid as to be in a key and then start in a completely different key? That doesn't really happen. Now, of course, there's there, it, it does in like, you know, in some more jazz. advanced jazz stuff. But that's when, <laughs> when you're playing that, you know how to look at the chord that you're playing over. I mean, mm-hmm. just, you know, in general. If you're playing over a blues and the key signature is B flat, then you should know exactly what you're going to be improvising over at the start of it. Because mm-hmm. that's what it's going to be. It's going to be in B flat. Of course, it might have a dominant, and we'll get into that stuff later. But the basic idea is it gives you right. where everything is based. Gotcha. It tells you that all your sense. notes, and if you're on a piano, it gives you literally the notes that you're allowed to play. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, on any exactly instrument, it tells right you what you're allowed to play. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's just on, for me on guitar, it gives me where I can play. On a piano, it's kind of a what you can play. I guess that's I, true, yeah. On if, guitar, if that, your shapes are movable. Exactly. So like, that's one thing that I explain to students, is that sometimes this is... Even though you can learn what to play and you need to know what to play, this gives you a where. It gives you a location on your instrument as well. Whereas on a piano, it doesn't really give you that. So piano mm-hmm. players, you don't, you, yes, you put your hands in quote unquote the position of the key, but it's really telling you what you're allowed to play because you can't just right, play exactly. your white keys starting on E and you're in E major. It doesn't work that way. Obviously. Right. <laughs> yeah, that then you're just playing a what would that be a um Phrygian mode? Yes. Of C. I think Phrygian. I can't mm-hmm. remember. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Oh hey. It's nice it's nice to be right sometimes. 
<laughs> the other thing that key signatures do is they establish relationships to the other pitches that you're using. So basically what a key signature is, is it's a set of pitches that you're using and every pitch has intervals between them. And those are defined because of what key signature you're using. Right. And so it just gives you, like Matt said, it gives you home base, gives you the idea of where everything's based around and it establishes all the relationships to each other. The reason this is important is because it keeps everybody on the same page. So Mm -hmm. all the musicians that are playing up there know what they're supposed to play, where they're supposed to play, and how to keep it together, because how to keep the pitches the same, because it's defined for them. If it wasn't defined, then there's no organization of the music. You could end up with all sorts of stuff that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Right. So defining it is vital to being... To, to a group playing together, especially if it's a big group like an orchestra or that sort of thing, because, like, yeah. do you remember, Matt, this is a fun story, do you remember our jazz arranging class and all yes. the, the stuff that we were working on? So you did Monin, I yeah. did um, I did In a Melotone. That's right, yeah. Do you remember what song Court did? Oh my gosh, no, I don't remember. I, I can't remember the song, but I remember he handed me a chart of music that first of all was in the wrong clef. Wasn't it, it like an alto clef or something? It um, was... Something like that. It was a whole step below bass clef. <laughs> I, I, I can't remember what it's called, but the bass clef, instead of being in F clef, it was over what would be D on bass clef. It was... Evil. I, I don't even know how to read that clef. But not only that, but my chart was in a different key than everybody else's. <laughs> you remember that now? Oh, oh no, I definitely remember the whole thing. I remember you showing me that chart, and I was just like, oh my goodness. That well, I remember we're trying to play it, and I'm getting like death looks from the director. I'm like, I swear to you, I'm doing the best that I can. And I bring it up to him, and I show him, and he goes, all right, well, everybody, let's uh, let's put this one away, and we're going to move on to another song. Because <laughs> it was literally in a different key and a different clef and everything, so it was impossible for the group to sound good together. I just love the just, fact that Court owned it, and that he was enjoying, he oh, was yeah. up there he, conducting like a boss, and um, it, yeah. it, it, was, it was a that, sight to see, because I think, I still don't know if it was a joke or if he was serious. I don't think anyone will ever know that. But one thing's for sure, he, he sold it. <laughs> yeah. That's true. It was, oh man, it was fun. That, it was so terrible. It was so wonderful. that's why key signatures are important. Because otherwise, you're going to have a train wreck. It was you're not gonna fun. You're going to have a bad time. Or like, have you ever played and been playing in a band and you hear somebody next to you play one note and you're playing a different note and they're half steps apart and you can't figure out why. It's, <laughs> it's basically because somebody blew through the key signature. I can pretty much guarantee you that. So Usually. they, yeah, they, they're really, they're, they're not hard either. So no. do you remember Matt learning key signatures? Yeah. I, I remember the method that I used did, did you have a specific method? Uh, Obviously, in the end game of, of it, 
you need to just memorize them. You'll just start to recognize each one for what it is, and you'll just see it. You'll see how many sharps or flats there are, and boom, you just know. But Mm -hmm. in order to get there, I think that it's important to incorporate some tricks besides just writing them all down on flashcards and and memorizing them that way. That way, when it shows up in sheet music, you have a way to quickly figure out what it is. So did you have a trick or anything like that that you used? Well, so when I first started trying to learn my the uh, the key signatures, it was in high school. Mm-hmm. And my goal was just to learn the the quote-unquote 12 major key signatures, mm-hmm. which I guess depending on who you talk to, there's not really 12, but anyways. <laughs> um, so I was learning the, the key signatures, and I was playing saxophone at the time. I hadn't started playing bass yet. And I remember being so stressed out because I was trying to learn the, what the notes were and learn to play them at the same time because I thought I would just save time that way, you know. And I, th- I still think that's a valid way to learn it because it's a tactile way to do it as well. Obviously, there's different learning styles. Some people learn it by hearing it. Some people learn it by reading it or writing it. I tend to learn stuff by just muscle mo- um, muscle memory. And if I can do it hands-on, I'm going to remember it for pretty much forever. So I was trying to learn these scales, and I remember not being able to figure it out. I was getting so stressed out trying to figure out how to play them, and it was like a nightmare. And then I started learning bass, and they, my director put a book of scales in front of me. And he told me, or my lesson teacher did, and he told me, he's like, all right, so you're going to learn all 12 major scales, and you're going, and by the end of next week, you're going to be able to play them all in less than a minute, and you're going to impress all your friends. I was like, no, that's, that's not possible. Because <laughs> I've been trying to learn for like two years on my saxophone and just couldn't do it. And so then he showed me how to play them. And all of a sudden it clicked and I realized this is way simpler than I was making it. Mm. So I, th- I think that now I could have, the way that I, my brain works now, I could have learned them on saxophone really easy. I just was stressing myself out at that point in my life. But I didn't really use any sort of trick to learn it. I basically just learned them once I finally got a bass in my hand and it just laid naturally for me. And actually, because what I was doing is I was treating them as like foreign entities. Like this scale, the scale of G major is not related at all to the scale of A flat major, which. That's right and wrong. I mean, yes, they're half steps away. They're not, you can't play them together, but they're literally just the same thing starting on a different note. Right. And once I realized that, oh my gosh, all my stress went out the window and it was easy. That makes sense. So for me, it just took a change of mindset. That makes sense. Right. And I still think now if I picked up my saxophone, I mean, I know most of the fingering still. I don't, I don't remember all of them because it's been so long since I've played. If the I, beastie, though. Yeah, but I could learn the, uh, you know, the key signatures would be no problem for me now, like they used to be. Oh, yeah. Just because of the mindset shift. That's all. All, all it took for me was a mindset on how that I looked at key signatures. Hmm. So for all our listeners out there, basically what I did is I, re- I realized that G major and A flat major are literally the same thing starting on different notes. They are the same 
distances away from all the notes. You still have a whole step, a whole step, a half step, whole step, whole step, whole step, half. It's still the same. It just starts in a different spot. And once I realized that, it made it easy for me. So how did that like translate to helping you identify the key signature for what key it is? Uh, the way my brain works is I just remembered them. Ah, well, uh, there you go then. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's once I realized that they were the same, just starting on different notes, for some reason they just clicked and I remembered what they were. Gotcha. But I do know lots of tricks that people have used to do them. Mm-hmm. I think the trick of learning the circle of fists doesn't really help. No, because it'll take you a while. So if if someone hands you a piece of music in B and you have to count out the circle of fifths, basically the way this works is if it's sharps, you have to count by fifths going up. And mm-hmm. that also means you're going to have to know what the five of you know each note is once it gets to sharp. So eventually you'll get to B, which then goes to F sharp, not F, F sharp. Blah, 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 blah. So you have to remember those things, which that's that's no biggie, but it's still going to take you a little bit of time to count up or in flats count down. So you're rather going to be going up the circle or down the circle. And however many sharps or flats there are, that's how much you're going to have to count to identify it. And you're just going to look like a silly toddler counting out their fingers trying to figure out what on earth am I looking at. And, oh, no, it's that key. Oh, I'm so scared. You should never be scared yeah, of these, exactly. by the way. The circle of fifths is a, it's very useful. We use it in jazz all the time. Sure. But we do the circle of fourths. So we just do it backwards. And we do that for our chord progressions, and it sounds really nice. But when it comes to learning, using that to help you find key signatures, I think it's just... It takes a lot longer, and it's really not a good way to recognize them quickly. Yeah, it really. It's better for understanding the concept of the order of the key signature than it is for actually identifying them, because it's going to be a slow ride. Mm-hmm. So, did that? I'll explain how I learned it. I don't actually remember if it was taught in my theory course or if I figured it out. I honestly don't remember. It might have been taught. I wouldn't be surprised because when I started in theory, I was an absolute musical idiot, uh, um, both in my level of playing and in my understanding of music. And then I, it just drove in like a fishing hook and took me on a wild ride. And I learned everything that I needed to know. So I cared about it. But the key signatures are can be identified very, very quickly because I think I mentioned it last week in the episode, but I'll just say it again. The, in sharp keys, the last sharp, meaning the whatever sharp comes before the, the, the notes in the music, whichever one was added last, that is the leading tone. There mm-hmm. you go. You're, it lit, the sharp keys literally add in the leading tones as it goes. So in G, there's only one sharp. It's on F. It's an F sharp. That's the leading tone to G. Now, that was a roundabout way of figuring it out. But if you just look at it and you're like, da, da, then there you go. You figured out what key it is immediately. As long as you can read the, you know, (laughs) the music. So learn your notes. But for flat keys, it doesn't really work that way. You have to look at the second to last flat. And boom, there's your key. So that that's pretty easy too. Right. 
It just doesn't work for F, which is just one flat. And obviously there's no second to last uh, flat when there's only one flat. So sorry, bub, but you just have to know that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's always one. Like, yeah, there's always one you have to just remember. And if there's nothing there, well, what are you going to do? There's no key. H- how do you know? How do you know what to play when there's nothing there? Tommy, help. Right, exactly. Some people act like that. that. That's the sad thing. They're just so scared of theory that any possible footstep into understanding it is terrifying. And I never understand. So I think the other thing that we we did mention it, but every major key that you read, it also has a minor, a relative minor. And the key signatures do not have a system in place for giving you a discernible difference between them. So there's not like some little mark that they put on there to say, oh, it is in G, but actually it's E minor. And so it doesn't actually tell you that. You actually will need to look at the music to see whether or not it's major or minor. Sorry, but that's the way it works. And all the notes are the same. Of course, there are the harmonic and melodic minor scales that we've talked about before. And we'll probably talk about it in a minute. But Mm. at least starting out, sorry, but you're just going to have to learn to uh, use your alphabet and go back to letters to figure out your relative minor. Yeah. It, 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 it's the good old, are you, uh, are you going to get a DUI? Say the alphabet backwards. Oh, but it's only from G to A. <laughs> Is it really that scary? No. Yeah, there's, yeah. I think we pretty much covered what you need to know about key signatures. They're, they're not hard at all. You know, there's only seven notes in a scale. Like Matt said, you have A through G. Just sometimes they're sharp and other times they're flat. I think it's mostly the, um, for one, you have to remember that key signatures exist. Um, right. I think even when I have dealt with older musicians, they'll just literally forget about the concept of keys. So they'll treat everything as C major unless the music just adds in the accidentals. And you just can't be lazy like that. You have to remember that key signatures are there and then go from there. Cause starting out, like if it's an E flat, you have those three flats and it might add in some accidentals along the way, maybe some natural signs or whatever, but you have to remember the notes of the key that you're in. And it's one thing when I'm working with children that are six years old and we're playing in G and there's an F sharp, a lot of the time I'll put little parentheses around the F to help them to remember. I, I try my absolute best, unless they absolutely refuse to learn it, to never actually write the sharp next to stuff. I'll just put like a little, you know, with asterisks next to the note or like above the note or parentheses just for a little reminder as they learn the concept of key signatures because... I don't know the science behind it, but kids don't really seem to grasp the idea of a key signature. If that, They'll forget that information by the time they get to the note almost every single time. Uh, eventually, they will learn it, but it takes a while. Whereas an adult should have the object permanence by then to remember key signatures unless they're just tired, which is okay. Sometimes I forget that they're there, and I feel like an idiot. 
as I should. Right. So to sum it up, key signatures are important, but you need scales too. You do indeed. <laughs> so uh, I put here in my notes, key signatures are made up of pitches that are related to each other. And scales in their most basic form are the pitches that make up the key signatures arranged from low to high. Or high to low. Really simple. <laughs> I guess if you're playing it down. Yeah. So like your key is C. Typically you'd play, if, like if you're going to play a C major scale, you just play the notes in the key of C from C to C. So C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Now you know your ABCs. Next time, won't you sing with me? <laughs> that won't get copyright. Oh straight. man, my kid's probably gonna like fail reading because it's only gonna know the first seven letters. <laughs> <laughs> How do I spell xylophone? There's two. What are these markings? <laughs> I've never seen this before. Why does that? Why does it start with a double sharp? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Elephone. Why why are words getting accidentals? Dad <laughs> How do I say a word sharp? Oh man. <laughs> that's too funny. That's basically what skills are. <laughs> uh so Matt then, I've got a question for you now. No. So we figured out how many <laughs> how many key signatures there are. So how many scales would there be? One. There's one scale. I'm not falling <laughs> for this again. <laughs> no, actually, there's 0. 0.530 pi and a half of scales. Right. And also oh, there's man. like 62,000. <laughs> you got it right. How did you know? Because <laughs> I'm a master. I'm the master of scale. <laughs> I'm like a fish. Oh, or man. Or a snake. Okay. A slippery snake. A guitar. I don't know what I'm talking about. A slippery I, snake. I drank too much oh. coffee. Anyway, scales, there's lots of them. Yeah. It's a trick question because, I mean, normally you would think if there's 30 key signatures, there must be 30 scales, right? But that's not the case because scales don't have to be related to a key signature. Not in the least. Yeah. So in their most basic form, the scales are literally just a key signature note to note. Right. Pretty straightforward. So your major and minor scales in their natural minor state are literally E to E with just an F sharp if it's E minor or G to G with just an F sharp if it's D major. Mm -hmm. So those are easy. When you're learning your key signatures, you'll learn your scales at the same time. Pretty straightforward there, I think. I don't think we really have to go in too much into depth into that part of it. Uh, your major scale, a lot of people like to teach it as... Whole, whole, half, whole, 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 half. So that's the distance of, the, that's how big the intervals are between the notes. Right. So your first note to a second note is a whole step. Second to third is a whole step. Third to fourth is a half step. Five to six is a whole step. Six to seven. Or four to five is a whole step. Six, five to six is a whole step. Six to seven is a whole step. And seven to eight, or to one again, depending on how you want to look at it, is a half step, your leading tone, because it, literally just goes up a half step. So that's pretty straightforward. Your minor scale, you have whole half, uh, whole, whole half, whole, whole. It's the same exact pattern, just starting on a different note. Mm -hmm. Really straightforward. The thing about scales is there's just a ton of them. Like we said, they don't have to relate to your key signature. So 
Like I know a couple weeks ago we talked about the blues scale. So we don't have to rehash that one a ton. But basically it's kind of like your minor scale with a sharp four and without the six and without the two. Mm-hmm. Depending on how you look at it. I mean, there's blues major and there's blues minor. They switch things up a little bit. So even that has its yeah. own renditions in different ways. Yeah. And they're essentially the same thing, kind of like Pretty the much. relative major and relative minor of each other. They're the same thing. I mean, it's really not as hard as people make it out to be. It's almost really like the blues scale is what I tend to use. And the blues major and blues minor like omit notes of the blues scale. That's like how it's it's annoying. kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not as hard as people make it out to be. No. And we talked about the harmonic minor and the melodic minor a couple weeks ago, too, as well as the natural minor. So those are really straightforward. Mm-hmm. They, we, you know, we discussed those. If you want to learn more about those, I'll link, I'll do a link to that in this, in the show notes here. So you can listen to more detail. I don't want to spend a ton of time on those right now. Nope. Um, but then you have all sorts of other notes that are other scales out there that are crazy. Like my favorite one. Well, it's not really my favorite, but in a way it's the easiest in a way it's not. Is the chromatic scale because it's literally all of the notes in a row. Every note <laughs> that you have on your instrument, you can now play. If you just say, I was playing the chromatic scale full. Yep. I like the that chromatic scale. It saves you too. from. <laughs> yeah, if you make a mistake, just say, Oh, I was playing the chromatic scale. I was work, doing some chromaticism stuff right there. It fixes everything and you'll ever do like, ever again. And it's like, oh, Whoa, he knows his music because he said that word it, that sounds like a clock or something. It'll blow people's minds. They'll love it. <gasps> how how even chromatic playing is really fun. I I do like to use it a lot. Obviously, it just sounds like oh, so you just literally play anything. And the answer is yeah, you you do. But it it is a tool for um, I would say sequencing. Um, if you mm-hmm. want to uh, push the tonality of what's happening, you can play chromatically. It's not something that you literally just sit there and play straight through chromatically all of the notes it's more so a a tonality that you use as you're playing so yes you could play from c to uh to c with every single note in between quickly and make a little chromatic swoop and i mean sometimes that's literally a slide from the bottom of your instrument to the top or something like that uh you'll Mm -hmm. hear that on piano players a lot they do the the little doppler effect where they slide their hands down they might hit right. all of the notes or just the white keys just black keys whatever so that it it's something that you definitely want to incorporate it's just it's not really a scale that you hang in whereas a, right. a mode you might be playing in the mindset of a mode for a while or you'll be playing in harmonic minor and that's just what you use so the same way that when we talked about the blues scale, we referred to it as a tool. You don't use it for an entire song unless you are right. literally in a blues jam session and playing anything else would get a beer bottle thrown at your face. So in that context, yeah, that's kind of how I like to look at scales, too, is as tools. So exactly. they're another tool in the shed to pull out for a specific job that you want to accomplish. You can't use a... A flathead screw, well, you, you could do that, but it's not very effective to use a flathead screwdriver on a Phillips head screw. You can, but it's going to take forever. It's just not going to work. So 
they're they're just tools for different effects, different sounds that you're going for. So that leads us to another scale that is very closely related to the um, the chromatic scale and really the blues scale, is, and that's the so-called bebop scale. Mm-hmm. The bebop scale, it's it's not something that we were ever taught in school. No, because it wasn't. It, wasn't. it doesn't really exist. Yeah, but you hear people talk about it all the time. People that want to act like they know about jazz will refer to the bebop scale a lot. And honestly, it's almost a dead giveaway that they're trying to approach jazz with much more of a classical mindset and analytical mindset instead of playing with your ear and listening to others. Because I don't. I don't think that Dizzy Gillespie got up on stage and purposefully whipped out the quote-unquote bebop scales on purpose as he was playing. I think it was more so afterwards when people went back and they listened to Charlie Parker and Joe Pass or Mm -hmm. all those guys that played the best of bebop, and they wrote, they transcribed their solos, and they figured out that they used these quote-unquote bebop scales where they had these techniques where they added chromaticism as they played through the notes so that they would be able to hit chord tones on downbeats, um, which is kind of the true mastery of bebop jazz, is hitting those chord tones on downbeats with all the upbeats not being whatever you want them to be. So you use any route possible to hit those downbeat chord, chord tones. Now, uh, there are written out, like, here's here's the bebop melodic minor or the bebop Dorian. And usually what's happening there when they actually analyze and quantify it, there's a chromatic tone that's added into the scale to create eight tones, therefore making it even. So if you played it up through, you have, in an eighth note run, chord tones on downbeats. So, Mm -hmm. makes sense. I tend to think that that's not what they were doing. Maybe there were a couple of weirdos that that's what they were doing, but I think it's more so that they were playing over the chords that were put in front of them using any notes necessary to achieve the tone that they wanted. So right. it's more yeah, of employing think, that chromaticism, the chromatic scale ideas exactly. without you know playing literally every single note up on the run. That's, yeah, that's exactly. And that's... That's kind of what the blues scale is, too. That four sharp, four or five is just a chromatic idea thrown in the middle. Right. The, I've heard so, uh, the, the bebop scale explained before as uh, your one, two, three, four, sharp, four, five, six, flat, seven, seven, one. So it adds in a sharp four and a flat seven. Well, there's also the major scale. Like that's like, oh, here's all the notes, and that didn't make any sense. And playing, it, I'm like, I've never really heard this before. That's because you don't really hear it. Yeah, so I think, the only notes that it doesn't employ are the the flat two, right, and the uh, flat three. And as soon as they get into but, playing over another chord, those notes will probably end up coming out. So, yeah, it's an interesting it's kind concept. of an excuse to play whatever you want. It, it, exactly. So I think bebop so, scales they're they're important to understand that uh the the purpose of it but be very cautious and careful in um adding that into your playing 
so that we wanted to talk about it because this is our time to talk about scales. And as jazz musicians, I think the, the bebop idea is important for us to discuss. But I think it's more so accurate to say that there are people that play in pentatonics all day long with the absolute idea that they are playing pentatonics than it is to say right. that someone is Definitely. playing a bebop scale all day long. Right. Speaking of pentatonic scales, what would you, um, what, how would you define the pentatonic scale? Well, it does omit the four and the seven. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like that's the, pretty much it. It, it. The major pentatonic. That's what it does, and it's it's eliminating half steps in the scale. That's what it's doing. So it opens up the sound. Um, you might think of this as. The easy way the guitar of playing guitars, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's like one of those easy scales that guitars the guitarists learn so that they can play up and down the fretboard quickly because you only have a couple note. You literally have two notes per string in a minor pentatonic, so uh, sweet picking becomes easy for young players. Things like that. I think mm-hmm. that it is uh, like we were talking about before the episode. It really is a pretty sound to outline when you're playing because it's very open and there's a lot of space in between those notes because we have all those whole tones that are happening there. We'll get into whole tone scales. <laughs> but the the sound if you play it right, it actually kind of has an eastern sound uh the like the Chinese and Japanese scales that they, they they're the specific thing. They're not exactly pentatonics, but they do sound similar to the pentatonic scale because the instruments right. that those uh, countries use in their rituals and um, performances and things like that, they played with more pentatonic styles, adding a little microtones there. So there's a lot of Eastern scales that are heavily based in pentatonics plus a little bit of extra. But that's why if you just sit down and you play around with your pentatonic scale, like you play all the black keys on your piano, suddenly it kind of sounds like you're opening up to a kung fu movie mm-hmm. i i tend to really like using it if i'm playing more funky stuff like if i'm playing over chameleon then that's a pretty good time to use some pentatonics and then in, maybe instead of actually you know playing e flat minor pentatonic moving to a different key like you know messing with it a little bit add some chromaticism while using a pentatonic so still those open tones, but harsh on the ear, something like that. Right. Um, it. Yeah, I like to use the pentatonic as a bass player. I think the pentatonic scale is incredibly useful. Very melodic. Because, yeah, and the reason, like Matt was saying, it takes all the half steps out. So the crunchy notes are gone. Mm-hmm. So, and all the weak notes are gone. So like the four of a, of a chord in most situations, is not something you really want to hang on as a bass player. So it's mostly a passing tone. So when you just play through a pentatonic scale, you don't, you don't play the passing tones. And having that six in there as well gives it almost like a gospel-y type of feel, too, depending on how you, you phrase it. Sure, yeah. Because so, they use a six a lot in gospel music. And so it just... It's really it's nice because... If you're playing the pentatonic scale over your chord, so if you're just a, a G chord and you play the G pentatonic scale, you know you're not going to play a note that sounds bad. Right. 
you could pick any of those notes and you could play it and you could hang on it without switching notes and have it sound fine. It's very safe to be creative. It's with. very safe. Exactly. So it's a really good starting point. I would recommend that if you're trying to get into improvisation for the first time or trying to learn how to play bass fills for the first time or you know that sort of thing, that you learn your, your blue scale and your pentatonic scales. Yeah, it'll help because getting it the good you, sound starting out. Yeah, it gives you a good sound starting out. It gives you another dimension besides just playing your regular major scales all the time. Yeah. Now, would I recommend you play the pentatonic scale all the time? No. No way, definitely not. Especially if you want to make a career in jazz. People, Heavily jazz burned. guys don't like the pentatonic scale that much in, in the jazz setting. Yeah. I feel like it's getting more popular with um, modern jazz in a way because they're trying to simplify it. Because, you know, jazz got so complicated, nobody wanted to listen to it. Right. But if you listen to jazz now, it's like all about a really good groove in a, in a simpler chord progression. Yeah, I think they're trying to and reel so, it in and bring it back to it being a dance music style, which yeah, is very, very smart. Yeah, people actually will listen to. Right, right. And I, something that's more fun to play, it's more fun to attend the concerts, it's less for the analytical minds that want to sit down and hear how much you can break the rules and more about how much you can... Break the rules in a groove. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And pentatonics are very useful just because, like you said, it, it doesn't have the crunchy notes. So you're not going to clash with yourself. You're not going to clash with others. It is very useful. Yeah. Like I said, melodic. So a lot of the things that you'll play in it, it is automatically sounding to your ear like it's a melody. Just by mm-hmm. default. That That's one of yeah, the reasons it's very it popular in... in um for younger players is because it's immediately sounds like, Oh wow, I'm doing pretty good because it sounds Mm -hmm. melodic. It's not clashing with anything. It sounds like you're always playing right. Um, And I I think that's very important, but like you said, it's, it's very frowned upon by a lot of uh, stingy players. I know that back in college, Tommy and I were, we would instantly we be able to hear players. that the the pentatonic players that were just trying to sound like John Mayer or something and never want to play with them again or even talk to them. And part of me feels bad for it, but some of those people weren't exactly the nicest people in the first place. So I don't feel too bad. Well, <laughs> but the thing is, though, too, at that time we were playing like we were playing real jazz, like hardcore jazz. We weren't playing anything else. We were playing Bop. Yeah. And so... It just didn't fit for what our goals were. And honestly, part of me still wishes that that's all I was playing because I just love that so much. But yeah. I've matured as a musician and as a person and realized that it was probably not the nicest thing to be mean to people for playing pentatonic scales. I don't think we were ever but mean hey, to people. It's just we kind of wrote them off well, for hiring them for a gig. We weren't mean to them to their faces. That's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> we were jerks in college. In a way. I mean, we were we we can be, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were just stuck in our little jazz world and we didn't want to go out of it, you know. And so now that we've realized that, oh, yeah, uh, those other uh, other forms of music are valid too, yeah, we kind of softened up a little bit. <laughs> a little. Oh, I still man. hate country. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we don't have a ton of time left, but I, would, I do want to talk about the whole tone scale. Yeah. Because the whole tone scale... 
I hate playing it on bass. Oh my gosh, I hate <laughs> it on bass. I'm sure you do. Because it's so awkward to play on bass, but it sounds so cool. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so a whole tone is, scales exactly what it sounds like. It's literally just whole steps. Mm-hmm. So C, D, E, F sharp, G sharp, uh, A sharp, which would be B flat, and then C, C again. Yep. So it's it's kind of strange. It's not something that you're going to build a song off of. You're not really going to build harmonies off of that, but you can play it for effect and have it be really cool. And there's only two whole tone scales, which makes it really easy. There's C and there's C sharp, or D and D sharp, or E and F, because they're just the whole tones, and so they'll run into each other. You'll have the same notes again. Right. Whether you start it on C or you start it on D, it's the exact same notes, just a different starting point. Which is very useful if you want to use it in your soloing because you only have to know one of the notes that you need. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you know where it's to just play a it. fun effect. Yeah, like I like the thought of playing a whole tone scale into a chromatic lick. Yeah, I think that sounds really nice. So that that was pretty straightforward. It's a good um, it's a good technique exercise on bass because sure. it makes you stretch and it's terrible for it. It's not, I don't like playing it on bass, but it sounds nice. Yeah, yeah. It's a cool sound. I haven't used it that much, so I can't speak too much of employing it into my playing. I want to use it a little bit more and actually dive into incorporating it into my improv. And I, I just haven't yet. Unfortunately, I don't get to play enough to really experiment with such things. But if I do it in my own time, I think I can really start to figure out where it goes for some reason when i think of the whole tone scale i always think of those those songs that we used to play kind of like footprints or uh, equinox or just wayne shorter stuff in general i don't know why anytime i think of whole tone i think of wayne shorter and i don't i don't know if that actually has anything to do with each other it's just what i think of i think it's just because he likes a valid assumption I've never transcribed him before, so I don't know how often he uses it. Yeah, I don't know. But that kind of sound is about right. It, I mean, whether he does it so it. open and he loves uh, experimental sounds and harmony. So I feel like that's not far off. I just don't quote me on it because I might be sounding like an idiot to someone that really knows their stuff. It just it sounds right to me. <laughs> yeah, I think that sounds about right. I, I, like I said, I haven't transcribed him, so I don't know for sure. The cool thing about the whole tone scale, too, is that it's really open, like you said, but it's also dissonant at the same time. Yeah. Because, like, you have your, you you have a B flat and a C in there, but they could be, like, I'm trying to think of how to describe this the right way, but you also have the G sharp in there, too, so it's really cool to play over altered chords. Right. Because you have all the right notes for an altered chord and it's just kind of fun. Yeah. And I know that we're saying open a lot for these scales, which a lot of scales, when you see like the huge list of all these different sounds, they are open because they omit a lot of notes and that's what makes it what it is. Whereas major in its core is one of the tighter scales and then Obviously, chromaticism mm-hmm. is the tightest of scale. 
So right. the the so open sound to the intervals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're referring to the interval, and as you're playing it, those intervals are so separated that it creates an openness. Now, I do think that there are a lot of scales out there. They omit so much and have so few notes that they're too open. Now it just sounds mm-hmm. like you're plucking out random notes from your major scale with maybe an accidental on some random note. So there is such a thing as too open, whereas whole tone scale, I mean, it's just all the whole steps. So it creates an mm-hmm. openness, but not too open. It's not too wide. It doesn't go so far that it stretches and snaps. Yeah, it's it's nice sounding. And speaking of tighter sounding scales, I would like to tell you about the diminished scales. So I think we might have mentioned these before. They are built on rather whole half steps or half full. And what I mean by that is you take your starting note and there's only three possibilities. C, well, I mean, you could start it from anywhere in the scale, but at its its most basic, kind of like the whole tone thing. There's only three sets of each of these. So say it's a C, C sharp slash D flat or D. Those are the three different versions. And then you take this pattern, whole, half, whole, half, whole, half, whole, half, or half, whole, half, whole, half, whole, half, whole. Um, I don't know if that was the right amount of them or not. Actually, I think it was. I, think, I don't know either. I don't know, but you get the idea. It's, 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 it's a pattern. The whole half diminished scale, that is the version of it that when you're improvising, you use that to play over fully diminished sevenths. Whereas the half whole, <laughs> this is really funny to be, <laughs> to be talking about, I don't know why. Uh, the half whole <laughs> diminished scale is the dominant diminished. So that's the one that you can play over dominant scales. Of course, you can break the rules and play whatever you want. But this is the one that sounds best when you whip it out over all those dominant chords that you encounter in jazz and blues and all these other yeah. styles of music. Sevenths are of... Or, Dominant sevens are a very, 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 very common chord. So sneaky, sneaky. Learn the half hold well, diminished scale. It's a very cool sound. Yeah. And you end up with a flat nine and a sharp nine in there and the dominant seven. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to sound like you're playing out of the key, but you're not really. Yep. It's super cool. Like, you know, that sound when you hear a player go out of the key and you're like sitting there, you're listening to it. Everything sounds really good. Next thing you know, you're like, Wait, that's a little, oh, that was nice, you know? Right. That's, this is a tool to do that with. It's a very useful shape to learn in your playing because incorporating it, it'll sound right. So whereas your chromatic scale, it might come off a little random. You might experiment with it and sometimes it might not work because it's basically random. This will give you a tool that you can play over a chord that will sound really crunchy and you will get some really creative uh, Eastern-ish sounds out of it. So, bam, out of nowhere, you've got notes that your listener did not expect at all. Mm-hmm. And it does not sound bad. It, it This isn't crunchy in the way that it's like, oh, oh, dude, why? No, no, no. It it does actually sound good. So even though you're going to get some half-step sounds in there, it works. It Guaranteed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, one thing I wanted to point out, too, is that we didn't talk about modes in this episode. And that's because modes aren't really true scales. Not really. They're just mm-hmm. different arrangements of the scale. So 
like your Dorian mode. I know we've mentioned this before. I just want to make sure I say it again. The Dorian mode in is your so is C major. It, let's just talk about that. So we're in C major, C D E F G A B C. Your Dorian mode is D E F G A B C D. It's a C major scale starting on a D. So it's not its own scale. It's just a different arrangement of the scales of the notes in the scale. Mm-hmm. That's why we didn't spend a whole lot of time on those or even really talk about them till now because they're not truly scales. Yes. Um, I do want to make sure we just let everybody know like these key signatures and scales. I know there's a ton of them and it can sound complicated when we tell you about oh, half whole diminished or whole half diminished or whole tone scales or bebop scales, chromatic, pentatonic, whatever. They are the building blocks to the rest of music theory. Mm-hmm. It's They're not super complicated in themselves. Now, what makes them complicated is that there's a lot of them. That's yeah. what makes them hard. It's, they're not hard with themselves because you've got seven notes to work with in any key signature. It's not like it's that crazy. And, you know, in your chromatic scale, you've got 12 notes, but that's not that crazy, you know. Pentatonic scale has five. It's just a lot of stuff to remember, but each concept itself is not hard. So I don't want you guys to think that you have to learn it all today in order to be able to be a good musician, because you don't. You got to start somewhere. So start with your major and minor scales, then add your blues scale or your pentatonic scales, and then you can build up from there. You know, and one thing you'll notice too, and Matt, I'm sure you're the same way with this. It doesn't take me long to learn a new scale when someone poses a new idea to me because I know my basic major and minor scales. Right. Like we said last week, one of the reasons music theory is important is because it cuts down on the learning curve. Yeah. Makes it a lot easier for you to understand new concepts because you understand where the new concepts came from, the basis. So just take it easy. Take it one step at a time. Learn your major scales, then your minor scales then maybe your blues scale or your pentatonic scale, one or the other, and then you can start to add stuff in there. Chromatic scale, I would learn pretty early too. Sure. Because it's not hard. You literally just play all the notes in a row. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really cool. Like One thing that I teach my students is a warm-up exercise that is essentially the chromatic scale. You just don't realize you're playing it. So it's... It's not hard to learn all this stuff. It really isn't, but it's incredibly important. So you'll hear more about it next week. Well, you'll hear more about why it's important next week when we move on to the next section of our series here, which I'm trying to remember what that is. I'm pulling up my list right now. So next week is going to be episode three of the season. We're going to talk about triads and extensions. Okay. So... They sound complicated right now. I promise we'll break it down for you and make it easy. But you can't have your triads unless you have your scales. And you can't have your scales unless you have your key signatures. So just remember, they're all building blocks. You'll get better at it as time goes along. It's a language so that you can talk to us and we can talk to you. Yes, exactly. So, Matt, do you have any listening recommendations this week? Uh, uh, Do you have one? (laughs) <laughs> I do have one. Okay, good. Now I, I wouldn't ask if I didn't have one. <laughs> so I know you guys have heard me talk about this guy before, Norm Stockton, but man, he is doing some amazing stuff. So he's working on this record called Grooves and Sushi, and it's really, really cool. So what he's doing is he's recording it actually in his home. 
with some amazing musicians. He's got uh, Greg Bissonette is playing for him and a bunch of other guys that are just incredible. I believe Lincoln Brewster is going to be on an episode as well. And he's released four episodes so far. And the fourth one blew me away. My wife loved it when I made her sit down and listen to it with me last night. It's just really beautiful. It's a, a moody piece, he called it. And it's pretty interesting. He plays, I don't, I don't know how he gets the tones that he gets. I just, every time I hear him play, I'm in love with the sound that comes out of his bass. Mm. But yeah, Norm Stockton, Grooves and Sushi, episode four just came out. It's called, uh, like, uh, something with Fractured. Let me double check the name of it. It's the, it is called uh, Fragile When Fractured. Mm. It's, it's, it's very, very good. Hopefully we can have him on the show at some point to talk about it and to give us an idea. He teaches a course on uh, groove. He has his whole art of groove is his thing, and it's really, really cool. It's really good content, too. So, yeah, it's, it's awesome. I would look that up. It's on YouTube. I will put the link in the description below. Mm-hmm. I believe he's got the singles of each song out on um, some of the some social media or um, iTunes and that sort of thing. I believe he's got singles out there as well. But if he doesn't, then he will soon. They're absolutely incredible stuff. Nice. Since you went more of the uh, thoughtful, intellectual, jazzy direction with it, I guess I'll. Uh, drop the recommendation on more of the silly end of things. There's a band that I love that really makes me smile. They're called Starbomb. They just released what is probably going to be their uh, last album. It's called The Triforce. It's Triforce. Right, right. So like the Zelda <laughs> Triforce, but, you know, with a try, T-R-Y. So it's it's a really it's a really fun album. It uh, It's mostly, I guess you can call it rap, kind of a... I almost want to say a Limp Bizkit or Rage Against the Machine uh, kind of thing because they have a lot of rock in it that this album, I don't know if they did in their last one, but they have a legitimate band that they're playing with. So the music quality is ramped up a lot. It's very silly raps and singing. It's all based on parody of video game ideas and things. So I'm a nerd. I love it. I get all their references. It's very silly, very childish, and uh, not for children at all. Extremely explicit. So don't let your kids listen to this one. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's childish, but not that way. It's, it's, it's very <laughs> immature, and it'll make you laugh. And it's pretty doggone creative. Like one of the things that I enjoy about that band and other bands like that is sometimes they just get really doggone good ideas while they're just being silly goofballs. And it's pretty inspirational musically, especially when this album has been really successful for them. I think they've been featured on Billboard now. They're way up there in iTunes. So you listeners might actually already be aware of the album or whatever, but I, I, I really like it. It's really fun. I don't like rap that often. I've talked about the gorillas before, but that's about my extent of uh, enjoyment in mm. quote unquote rap. And this is just really fun. Really silly stuff. Check it cool. out. I'll have to check it out. I haven't listened to that before. Yeah. That's the great thing about music because you're always learning. There's always new stuff that you haven't heard of before. Oh, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty exciting. 
There's nothing. There's I don't think there's any other field like it where you. I don't know. I guess there are other things like it where you're never done learning, but this is never done learning, but it's fun to learn. It's it's not like you're having to work incredibly hard to learn some scientific theory that doesn't make any sense to anybody other than people with like <laughs> three doctorates and a poem. I don't know. That's really true. It's kind of like <laughs> if for some reason you got a degree in philosophy or something where there's all these points of view out there and all these books that are written so you can go and read all these points of view. Well, in music, you can take two seconds and just click on someone's song and hear their point of view on what the heck they did. Yeah, in in like three minutes or less. Yep. (laughs) Instead of a whole afternoon of reading a bunch of big words that barely anyone understands. Or what you can do is just listen to our podcast and we will tell tell you our opinions and you can just use ours as uh, the facts. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, because we we give you just the basics. We're keeping that beat. We're going to tell you the truth. We don't lie. We're not going to leave you hanging. We might not know how many scales and key sigs there are, but hey. We'll tell you what. I don't think anybody really does, though. No, no one does. (laughs) Learn them anyway. Oh, man. All right. This has been fun. I hope you guys will tune in next week as we continue this series on music theory, or this season on music theory, I should say. It's only going to get better. Triads and extensions are a lot of fun. So I think it's, uh, and you know, it's weird because triads are something that they didn't talk about until late, or the triads they talked about, but the extensions they didn't talk about until late in my uh, music theory career at Liberty. And I always thought that was weird. I felt like that should have been talked about at the same time as triads. Yeah, it's not as tricky as a lot of people make it out to be. It's really not, but we'll show you more of that next week. I think it'll be really enjoyable for you. Uh, We have some new stuff that we're working on that we're going to let you guys know about really soon. So stay tuned. I think next week is when we'll release the new information for you. So stay tuned because we got some really cool stuff that we really want you guys to be a part of some ways to get some new content for you guys. And so you guys can get some early access content and that sort of thing. So yeah, definitely check out next week's episode where we talk about that for you guys. Bonus. Stuff. Uh, yeah, some really cool. It's, it's awesome. I think you guys will love it. So anyways, until next week, um, we'll see you guys later. Bye-bye. <laughs>